Welcome to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, a student of nature-led landscaping and a person excited about the East Phillips Neighborhood Institute Indoor Farm. And that's the topic for today. We're very pleased to have in studio with us the chair of the East Phillips Neighborhood Institute, Dean DeVallis. Welcome back. Thank you. We've done so many shows on this over the years. Um, Is it time to celebrate? It's party time. It's party time? <laughs> yeah, it's Yay, party, party time. time. <laughs> <laughs> I could say, I could say, Viva Las Phillips. <laughs> we, we got the deal done. And really, I have to give credit to the community because, as you know, the city required us to approve ourselves $3.7 million. And if we had failed to do that, the city would have taken back the property and demolished the building and, considered, and, and gone ahead with their service yard. So it would have been a... Terrific loss, but community members who wish to remain anonymous posted the $3.7 million to satisfy the terms of the purchase agreement with the city of Minneapolis. So now we're on our way for a closing in June 24. So it's showtime it's show for this time. project. Yeah, we're real. We're excited. And probably what's most dramatic is when I got the letter uh, from Eric Hansen, who's the director of CPIT of Minneapolis, stating – you have satisfied the agreement. When I brought it to other council members and the community, they're jumping up and down and yelling and singing and dancing. I didn't realize the impact this project has had on the community and the electeds and the enthusiasm of seeing us go over. I thought, great, we got this done. They were like uh, orbiting the earth on the enthusiasm of what this represents to the community and the future this project is going to bring. It is. It is really funny. Even before there was something deeper going on, it's in the air and the atmosphere. It's, it's about having an economic system that works for people, not people working for the economic system. <laughs> well, that's what's key, and I think that's where the core excitement is. Because you know, we set up an economic model that basis that a third would be owned by the community, a third owned by the tenants, and a third owned by investors, and it's a community-driven model that has resonated deeply across uh, many communities and people are now paying great attention to this project for what it represents and they even had a delegation uh, come from Ethiopia to come to the office to look at this project. Then that's sort of the reach it's starting to get because they're starting to see an idea of self-determination, of reparations, of equity, of reversing environmental racism, of creating food and economic opportunity. All these things are wrapped into it because it's really been driven by the BIPOC community that's made this vision happen. And now it's off to the races because other communities are contacting. People are in the Herc fight of contact that us. People involved in the Upper Harbor and trying to get that aspect have weighed in uh, People, communities involved with the Lake and Nicola redevelopment are saying, can we tell us how to do it? Can we be part of this? Even George Floyd Square, because of what this represents and maybe because we're able to succeed, which always helps when you win because, as you know, it's an eight-year fight against horrific odds of a city administration mayor that wanted to bury this thing. But community prevailed. And communities here now and communities now advancing with, I think, is going to really be a terrific future economic vision of how development should occur in Minneapolis and really provide the opportunity that's coming out of this project. It's a very audacious and ambitious project. Yes, I'm not going to lie to you that it's daunting in some aspects, but it has to be because if you don't 
take the risks in driving something and go to the edge, you'll have nothing to show for it. And we're in an era, an economic time, a social time, in which these risks must be done. Otherwise, you're going to end up with a very negative uh, view of society, a very split society between rich and poor, and a lot of people being left behind. And those trends are accelerating. And so the Genius's project is starting to provide the opportunity to start to rectify those issues. And why this thing's getting such rapid momentum is people see within it how this can be reversed and how this can occur. So this is becoming a very, very visible symbol of hope against which somewhat is a relatively dark background. And that's why I think is very significant. I met with someone today who, right here, was said, you're providing hope for the communities. You're providing hope for society. You're providing, when I say your, it's really the community, East Phillips and EP&I, is providing these elements that are starting to reverse these trends and actually creating a viable vehicle to have this occur. So let's back up in case somebody, um, I know we've done shows on it probably nine years yeah. <laughs> here on Food Freedom Radio. We've done it for a long time. But okay, so um, where is the location and and talk about the building. So uh, the, talk about this location in the building. Yep. So the building's located, bounded by the streets of 28th Avenue, 26, Longfellow, and Highway 55. So it's in the Phillips neighborhood on the far eastern boundary. The building itself is 230,000 square feet, a warehouse building on a grid that's 26 by 26 in excellent condition. Yes, it's been vacant. Yes, the operators have gone through and cleaned it out, but the structure is solid. It was built by Sears Roebuck in 1946. They use 100-year specifications because Sears always thought their empire would be forever, so they designed their buildings to last forever. That's why I see so many Sears buildings still exist today of that era. And it works perfect. Plus, we have an additional two and a half acres land beyond the building. So in terms of the shape, uh, its location, its type, it's perfect for this concept of urban agriculture, hydroculture, and various community spaces. It's flexible, it's adaptable, and the beauty of it is because as a to such a large roof, we'll be able to do a four megawatt solar system on top of it. So the building will be self-producing energy-wise, plus give additional energy to 500 houses. So it's essentially gonna be net uh, zero green-wise, and that power, solar power, will help underwrite the tenants so they can be successful in hydroponics, aquaponics, and so forth. So it really, is a gift, and thank God we avoided demolition that the city was very hell-bent on, assisting on this building being demolished and insisting that it was a dangerous building and needed to come down. There's nothing dangerous about it. It's a clean, viable warehouse that will really serve the community for many, many decades to, uh, to go. So, uh, yeah, let's go a little bit into the history because it was 2015 when this Roof Depot building came on the market and the activists, including uh, Karen Clark, you guys rallied. Yep. You had a purchase agreement all set and you had this vision n yep. nine years ago. So then what happened? Yeah, so so here's the idea. We had a meeting and it was with the community at the East Phillips Community Center. And it was Carol Pass, Pratt Pass, Karen and others uh, were all gathered. 
And the question was, this building, sir, what should we do with it? So together we came with this vision of creating this green corridor, this green agricultural corridor, saying, you know, to, for me, so the new trend is going to be hydroponics, aquaponics, indoor farming. So this is coming. It says we may be learning out, but this will keep rooting and intensifying. And the neighborhood really rallied around that vision. So uh, through the uh, interest of a native tribe, who I, I can keep anonymous at the moment, and through the uh, benefit of the owner of the building at the time, we said, I like the neighborhood, I support this, and I'll sell it to you for basically $5.5 So we were well on our road working through that. Well, the city had different plans. The city's plan was to acquire the building, demolish it, and create a central service yard and take all the other service yards around the city and consolidate in this area so that other land would be freed up for economic development. So they're basically going to take the under vital uses, put in these Phillips, turn on the building, make parking spaces for 888 vehicles, a good chunk of them, diesel trucks, create a uh, diesel fuel station in the middle of it, well, that's the last thing we need in a neighborhood that has the highest intensity of pollutants, heart, stroke, all the asthma, all these elements in current pollution. Now we're going to add another intensive source point within the neighborhood plus the loss of the building. It was like a no-go situation. And plus there's arsenic under the building. So once you move the building, you release that arsenic. You, get, you, you just release all the evils that would come out of this thing. And then the fight started, and the negotiations, and the process, but it was always a one-direction negotiation. Take what you give you and be thankful for it. Well, we're not thankful for what you're giving. So even the city offered uh, three free acres, but they compact all their trucks on the rest of the site. So it's like, you give us three acres, yet we're going to accept all the pollution and negative effects that come off it. There's no gain for us, even and with this. And you lose the building. And you lose the building and the opportunity and the years to recreate it. Because you have a, a building that was built in 1946 dollars. You can renovate, and you think of it on the green basis as want to preserve what you have. For those reasons, for the speed of getting in the building, for all those aspects, it did us no good. It was what we considered a non-offer of the three acres of land. So we turned it down, and we continued to fight and negotiate. We occupied the site, and as you know, people got arrested on that. We litigated uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars in litigation uh, in this process. We worked vigorously. We were hours away from demolition when we got an injunction, which saved us because the city council had green-lighted this whole thing through to take down the building and pursue the project uh, without us. And what was key in the fight is what really I think, and there's many turning points, the people at George Floyd Square came through us uh, big time. Other communities outside of Phillips came through us big time. I mean, there was help all the way, but really what I started say is a key tipping point was the Minneapolis de delegation of legislatures, both in the House and the Senate, coalesced as a unified group and basically said to the mayor and the city, either help East Phillips or we're not going to help you, Minneapolis, and that quarter of a billion dollars you're looking for from the state, or quarter, quarter of a million dollars you're looking for the state, uh, actually billion, sorry, is going to disappear. And that really broke the mayor's back and the city came to the table. And 
structure to do we have today. So in the legislature approved a structure that said, and we had to break it up in small pieces because we had to sort of basically get it past Republicans because the mayor sort of started working with Republicans, you know, Emmy, Emmy is your friend, <laughs> to stop us through the committee because we were sailing through all the committees at the legislature getting amorous votes down the line. So it broke them to $2 million out of tax bill, $4.5 million in the bonding bill, and the remaining 5.7 will come in this session. Our obligation is the $3.7 million, and we proved that up to the city. So now we're set to go with this. Yeah, I mean, I, I you know, I, history is history, and you move forward. But it's just, I mean, it actually is really sad because there was so much wasted energy and wasted resources in that fight. I know the city spent millions of dollars on their vision, which was so contrary to the community. Um, and uh, but uh, but now, hopefully, and, and then I mean, the other thing is the Smith Foundry story that which, came up. And this is what's key about it because. The community reverse the decision of the city, even though, like you said, the city spent 10, 11, you know, millions of dollars uh, trying to drive their point. It put light and focus on it. I mean, this interview you're kind of doing puts focus and visibility. That visibility awoken the EPA. I'm not sure it was who or how. You know, because Ilhan Omar visited the building two weeks before it went over other sources. And it discovered that Smith Foundry, which is directly south of the building, has been basically free polluting. And, and they have heavy lead because it's a smelting company since 2015. Their systems were not worked. The MPCA missed it. We don't know why or how. And it wasn't until the federal level stepped in and said, my God, there's nothing restricting what's going on here. That would have never happened without the visibility that the media gave, that the community gave into the plight of this neighbor and to the surrounding issues of these uh, polluters that are nearby. And so now it's another fight, but it's another opportunity to really change the future. We're going to take a break. We're going back. We're talking about the East Phillips indoor um, farm. And we don't need an economic system based on pollution. We just don't. We don't need a food system based on toxicity. We don't. We can have a food system based on clean water and healthy soils. But it's a lot of work and it's a daunting work. So we're going to take a break. We'll be right back. We're talking with Dean DeVolis from the uh, East Phillips Neighborhood Institute. Waiting out there, they're all living, the devil may care, and I am just a devil with love to spare. So, Viva Las Vegas! Viva Las Vegas! And I am just a devil with love to spare. So, Viva, Viva East Vegas. Phillips! <laughs> Viva, Viva East Phillips! <laughs> so welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Headline, and we're talking about the East Phillips Neighborhood Institute, uh, the uh, vision for an uh, indoor farm. And, of course, this started, we were talking a little bit about the history. goes all the way back to 215. But in this last month, um, you've put up the, the – it's moving forward. So just update us on where it's at right now. So here's where we're at right now, and this is where it's really exciting. Today at my office, 1 o'clock, we'll work with Nexus to start building the community ownership model. And that's going to be really exciting. And Will Allen's going to be in attendance. You know, he's a national famed expert on community agriculture, agriculture, so forth. Uh, board members, community members, and so forth to start to construct this model, start to build this uh, 
uh, vision for what's going to be. So now we're now that we have the security, knowing that we have the project, we're now going full forth on building this community model. So that starts uh, today at one o'clock, the beginning of. We're taping this on vision. Thursday, and we'll air this Saturday. Yeah. So, so all right. So that's cool. <laughs> so it's uh, beginning uh, quickly on that. We're also getting plans ready and drawings and get the project entitled, which means take it through the planning commission, get it approved. Being that, we have taken bids with law for construction, looking at that model, or working with the Fagri firm uh, on that, uh, Fagri and Fredrickson. And I think Dorsey is going to join in too in terms of building. Uh, they gave us benefits amount of pro bono work to help build this community model, help us a purchase agreement. So having the top lawyers of the legal community, legal firm, step into this. And do it for free. Plus, and do it for free. And they're fascinated with this community model because I talked to them and said, Dean, this is such a relief from what we're doing and it's such an interesting project. We want to be part of this. And that that's a site. So not just doing it because they're required under uh, law. They're doing it because they're absolutely intrigued with what this represents. I'm, I'm going to read my little tea bag thing because it says, give to others and give to yourself the same attention. So when we give to others, we give to ourselves. So it's this – when we talk about the deeper thing is that we really – our economic structures are kind of um, toxic. It's – and that's why this has generated such interest. You think about the – one of the poorest communities in Minneapolis has raised millions, and I mean millions of dollars. The 3.7, the million we raised outside of it. I mean, last week, 100,000 came in. We're having interest, and then we're having interest from the elected and levels of government. They see this as a potential of writing a lot of what I call historic issues, but also creating a path forward, and that's probably the key. We talked about the past, which is good to know, but it's a future of what this will bring and the future of engaging citizens, communities, in terms of the ownership, in terms of decision-making, in terms of the green industries. There is a lot wrapped up uh, in this project that is really resonating in a lot of different avenues and, you know, Credit to these vividies Phillips because they've started a movement that yeah. is really uh, taking on. There'll be great benefits for many other communities. That's uh, great. Now, uh, this is radio, so we can't see the vision. But again, this this building is huge. It was built by Sears in 1948. If you put the IDS on, the, uh, made the IDS flat, that's how much room yep. we're talking about. So let's talk about the vision for what will be inside this biz, this building. So you're going to have a whole scale of what I call green tenants. And part of it is going to be hydroculture and aquaculture. What that means is indoor fish growing, indoor agriculture, plant growing, basically. And we have tenants that range from 75,000 square feet, like Blue Water Farms, that would be a major tenant, to smaller tenants like Gandhi Mahal, Gandhi Mahal, the restaurant, Roel, who you know is famous from the George Floyd riots, who said, let my building burn for justice. He wants obviously to grow tilapia with it. And then uh, Little Earth wants aspect to it, the East African community, the Latinx community. So you can have this great variety of food producers and growers and this cultural variety. And that's what's sort of key about it. So you're not just going to be limited to what I sort of call our main food source in the U.S., which is rather limited because we do mass agriculture. 
this will get much more diverse and really get into medicinal, medicinal foods, cultural foods, ethnic foods, all the variety and start creating this diversity that's going to be tremendous. So that's maybe two-thirds of the building. The other third is going to be reserved for a community kitchen, so the food that's produced can be grown and distributed. A community cafe is going to be part of it, a bike shop, entrepreneurial spaces, because, you know, with food production, it's required distribution, organizations, uh, those kind of be a sales and aspect on it, gathering spaces, uh, housing for deeply affordable housing at 30% adjusted median income is going to be incorporated on it. So you can have this ecosystem of food production, of, of interaction, of jobs. You know, this thing on its own will probably produce between 200 and 500 jobs, depending on how you cut the matrix. will send millions of dollars back to the community. So it really becomes its own economic basis. And the genius is that the dollars that are produced in East Phillips stay in East Phillips. As you know, most of the poor communities have to export their dollars because right. the service is out there and they have to drive to Roseville whatever to do their transactions. Now these transactions stay within the community and you start building its own economic center within it. So that's what's key about this also on it. So there's a broad-based opportunities in terms of uh, accessibility for all the cultures and races of Minneapolis, but also economic accessibility. And so you're really starting to cover a lot of bases with this and really a roadmap of what the U.S. economy could look like given the change of our demographics that are occurring in the U.S. and within this region. And ownership is so important. I mean, we've seen so much consolidation. And uh, it's four companies control 80% of the beef, for instance, and a handful of companies controlling seeds. And that's happening on a global level, which is probably why this is also attracting international level, because international intention, because um, owning the economy and owning our life, having agency over that is, it's been the dream of generations. Well, that's why I think the money raising and the political sort uh, behind it. I think people have been waiting who would be able to break through with an opportunity. So George Floyd, you know, George Floyd Square tried with the city sort of crushed that upper north side, didn't prevail. Uh, I mean, a project came through, but not quite in the community model that was envisioned. Here's one that got through in pure form. Uh, and it's a pure concept and actually now has a financial and political backing to make this happen. And that's why I think there's so much excitement about behind this. Okay, so the goals are to uh, serve the unhoused, support healthy food ecosystem, all while adding uh, $53 million in personal income to the neighborhood about, of course. Um, all that kind of, kind of sound too good to be true. And well, it, here's the thing. It should be true. That's the bottom line. Everyone's, oh, it's too big, too, because we have to sort of have a, as you say, a crummy economy. There's no reason to accept that. There just isn't. There's a hundred ways in which things can work, and why not make it work this? So why would just say it's not too good to be true? Why not just say it should be true? That's simple. And life is too good to be true. I mean, you really look in the complexity. I mean, we, we that, that in having a system that's too good to be true— it's audacious, but it's also in the realm of possibilities. And so that's why it's so exciting to see this. Now, let's talk about the wealth ownership model, the wealth structure of of the uh, of this uh, 
So the key to this model is a community ownership that a third be managed and owned and operated by the community and a third by the tenants. Why is that important? Because now the actual dollars that this generates will stay in the community and the models being developed in terms of self-determination, uh, self-regulation, self-deciding of where to spend the money, how to spend it. So as the community develops and makes their income, they'll start deciding where to invest the money, whether it's to create more affordable housing, underwrite tenants, support this, distribute itself. They have the notebook and the pen. They're writing it. And that's the beauty of this, that they're scripting the story themselves. Big deal as opposed to sort of being dictated or imposed upon that you will follow this model, you will do this process, you will do these economics, you will follow these rules. They're writing their rule book. And the beauty is they're writing the real book with expertise from Fredrickson and Fagri in terms of helping that. So they're writing it within our laws and norms and so forth. So it's not like they're just making stuff up. They they're not by themselves. They're not by themselves. Thank you. And then the other key is tenant ownership, pride of ownership. Most people are tenants, you know, landlord-tenant relationship, which we all know is a historic model. Now we have an idea which the tenants can somewhat behave like the landlords and help influence the building and the process of it. So they have a stake in it. Well, if you have more of a stake in a building and you consider, gee, it's part of mine, do you not think that the care and protection and investment in it will accelerate? And the idea that they get the benefits of real estate ownership, which is depreciation, appreciation, depreciation, appreciation, and so forth? Absolutely, because our laws and the IRS are written to encourage real estate ownership. You think of ownership, all those aspects. But if you're a renter, you're outside that realm and outside that possibility. Now they're brought into that economic system that allows wealth to be accumulated and built up. So that's really a key part of this project. And then the residents, um, uh, do they, so a third of it, uh, talk a little bit about the ownership, some of the so, people there might be so living So it's going to be East Phillips residents. They're, they're writing up their requirements, the community is, meaning you have to, and they come with different ideas. You have to have resident in community, you know, whether it's one year, five year. You have to live here, so you want to establish, you know, rules of residency. So you, you don't have the speculators jump in by the shares and take off with them. So to establish that, you got to be part and of the community. Is a rule of it. Decision making would be jointly. They'd have their own board of directors uh, to influence on how they spend the money, how they develop, how they influence the building, and so forth. So they're going to have a very direct stake in that process and a residence requirement that's going to come with it uh, on it. So this is not just casual shares that are given out to whomever because it's a community that created this project. Obviously, they have the right to participate in it and have them be the main participants of it. Tenants, same rule. If you're a tenant, long-term lease, you're allowed to buy into it. And some of the models we're thinking of is that we would have a base lease and I'll just throw out a number of $5 a square foot for discussion. And let's say that covers the operating expense of the building. Then the tenants may be allowed to pay an additional dollars. Let's say an additional $2 a month beyond that. That $2 would be, would be their buying into the ownership of the building. So they'd be covering the expense of the building, and then they could do an overage if they wish, which would buy their share 
into the real estate, into the opportunity of it. So this this donation of legal services is is really fundamental to this project. It's huge uh, because we can actually make have the best minds build the legal and economic model. I have to give a shout to MPCA because they took us in a brownfield program. So they're doing all the analysis of the environmental issues, all the structure, all the testing at their expense, and they will guide us to apply for all the appropriate grants uh, to make this work. So that's been a big part too. So now we have that aspect covered. We have the legal uh, structure covered. We have uh, donations uh, coming from a lot of different sources to help us with the entitlements. Uh, we have bank institutions that are very interested in this project to step in. So I haven't even uh, mastered all aspects of this yet. We're just starting to get into it. So yeah, there's a lot, and and there's also um, uh, 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 East Phillips Urban Farm Benefit Concert on Sunday, November nineteenth at seven o'clock. That's at Holy Rosary Church, twenty four twenty four Eighteenth Avenue, Minneapolis. A benefit concert for East Phillips Urban Neighborhood, and that's with the Minneapolis uh, Choir Co-op. So I mean, I'm sure yeah. we're going to take another break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk more about um, uh, where this project is at and how. People can help rally and how we can support this um, living economics um, in a way that embraces each other in a, in a living world and just create the, the world our uh, parents wanted to see for us and we want to see for our kids. You're listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950. Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Headline, and we're talking about the East Phillips Indoor Farm. Um, and so uh, this has been going on since 2015. It's uh, the, the, the physical location was a Sears building built in the 1940s. It's huge. Um, and uh, the, city, the East Phillips neighborhood has put up $3 million. So let's talk a little bit, just quickly update. There is um, a benefactor that's anonymous um, that has helped guarantee some of the money. It's a member of the community that uh, was has been a benefactor all along in this and basically said, and I worked with them to come up with the structure to satisfy the purchase agreement that the city said, which basically the city said, prove your $3.7 million. If you fail, we take it back. Well, we proved it. And the benefactor who I expressed, so I'm going to be mean with actually after this meeting, I cannot think enough and the community for making this vision come true. And uh, that's the power of community, even against the depth of odds and the depth of negativity and the depth of political forces, it prevailed. And people personally uh, prevailed and staked their fortunes and their livelihoods on making this happen. So yeah, absolutely a key part of keeping this project alive. 
It's it's amazing. So so I'm going to read from some of the comments um, on the Star Tribune article. So um, so someone said, oh, yeah, I would love to know who and what this individual who guaranteed this project is. Uh, not that I believe that there's bad reasons behind it. I just like to know the end game of it all. So what is the end game of so it all? Here's what the benefactor said, and I, I want the world to hear this. I'm doing this, and this is called. I don't want to make money on it, quote unquote. I don't want to profit from it. I want to make this vision come alive, and I've committed to it. So I'm not, I don't want to be an investor. I just want to see this project happen because I believe in what it represents, and I believe in what it could do. That's his motivation, just pure and simple. There is a greater wealth than that can be measured in dollars. And this is, this is why this project is so fascinating. People are seeing that, that it's not just an economic vehicle with an internal rate of return and all that. Also, we have to be fiscally responsible and make it work. But they're seeing it for what it brings beyond just the dollars, as you said, what it brings beyond in terms of the social causes and the opportunity that's far more broad-based than what historically has been occurring. And that's why dollars have poured into this. If people can't volunteer, they're giving dollars to make this happen. And some of the comments in the Stern Tribune um, were, um, you know, they're just using city money and state money, and they're kind of all, you know, using our money to do this. But from a purely financial viewpoint, this actually might end up generating more dollars because it's going to generate s- sales tax and income. So, I mean, it's uh, – is this uh, – I think the person I – I don't know if it was – is this a ripoff to state taxpayers, I guess, is what their viewpoint was? This will go far beyond the money that the state is putting into it. You're looking at economic benefits over 10 years at $600 million plus in an area that's not seen it versus an investment of of 7 to 9 million that's the effect and that's what you realize i mean i know people talk about government dollars but government you know part of the function of government is to take chances because it's cumulative dollars and to assist in stuff that the private sector could never accomplish and this is part of it and really to help assist the private sector to grow and prosper that's what this project will do is allow all these entrepreneurs within this building create successful food in an area that used to be heavy heavy industrial, green industries, and start a transportation economy. The effect will go far beyond the investment within this and for many decades past, and that's what's key about this. This is not a one-and-done situation. So I just want your listeners to realize that, that this is – you look at it as a government investment, not a giveaway. And the government's investing in this economic future that provides a much more broad-based chance for a lot of different people and a lot of different communities. And government investment in agriculture is very deep. And we're spending a lot of money on soy and corn, which we know um, results in less than healthy food systems and results yep. in nitrates in the water and soil depletion. So we spend some substantial tax dollars on an agricultural system that's that could use improvement. Well, here's a fact. We're investing in the people too, and that's the genius of this project, that it's not just in underwriting a crop or underwriting a process or underwriting petroleum. We're now underwriting people, 
and that's what's key about this project and people's opportunity that comes with it. Yeah, and uh, and and to have an economy that works for people, not people work for the economy. I mean, Correct. You know, uh, here was another comment. Uh, b- believe it or not, you can't make money if you can't breathe. Um, so this whole idea of having a breathable space and the environmental um, legacy of this area. Of course, we talked a little bit about Smith Foundry, and there's so much. This was arsonist triangle, and so to um, to have a, 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 a to build this um, economic enterprise that's community-owned, that's grounded on health and well-being is... Well, if you look at the cost of the health system and the cost of dealing with stroke, heart disease, asthma, and this neighborhood has the highest rate of all those factors as a result of pollution within the area, and then the medical system picking up those costs and the loss of people's economic abilities... That probably is in the billions of dollars. So if you can reduce the root source of the pollution, the foundry, the petunias roadway, the cars, the traffic, the diesel, all that stuff, you're creating massive savings just to the health system. And that's why we've had a whole group of doctors from Minnesota join this cause because they see the economics and they see the human suffering that comes with unbridled pollution. And so if you can limit the pollution, you limit the health back effect, you increase people's livelihood, and you save billions and billions of dollars from that effect. So the idea is invest those dollars up front to prevent the cause, which will save billions downstream as, as, to treat people. And so that's Beautiful. the whole genius behind this. That's, it's great. So here's, a, here's another comment from that Stern Tribune article from a couple of weeks ago. Quote, this is so dumb. The idea that the best use of 7.6 acre property in the middle of Minneapolis is a farm? Well, that's, probably, that's crazy. That's a crazy idea. That's the genius of crazy. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll tell you why. The closer you can grow food to home, the more economical it is and the more control you have on your food and on your ability to prosper. Because right now in the U.S., our food system is very uh, removed from the consumer through many layers and many markups and distributions and so forth. Now the idea that you can control your destiny of food outside your front door is a huge advantage. And you're creating an industry in an area that needs the employment. You know, the average jobs on this 45,000 plus. So you're not creating jobs, creating the food within the city, creating green industries within the city, creating new economic opportunities within the city, and creating more of a stable food source that occur. There's absolutely nothing crazy about it. It's actually genius uh, what's occurring here. And Angela Conley, for example, Commissioner Angela Conley, Hennepin County, is loves the idea enough that we're looking at taking the Greenway bikeway that South Minneapolis and making that an agriculture corridor also to keep building upon the intensity of this idea. Yes, and 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 there's so many mutual benefits because once you do that, then it helps the pollinators and it helps um, it just and it, I think it it also has a tremendous effect on mental health. We have so many mental health problems as animals. We're meant to be connected with nature. And this brings it back home, and it gives the opportunity to work with nature. You know, because one thing about the urbanization is we create this huge disconnect with nature. And, you know, and we're trying to make it up through video games, other methods, where now we have the chance to actually physically be connected 
and create nature and create the opportunity too with it. I wish I could show you the, uh, the Little Earth Urban Farm and what it's done for the youth there to be connected with nature and take the pride of growing their own crops and selling their crops and creating opportunity. To witness that is tremendous. And so the idea has been proven. Now it's really to implement it. Yeah. Now, and there's, uh, I'm getting reading, this was a critical comment in the uh, Star Tribune. Uh, maybe it'll be wonderful, but I'm not hopeful. Consider the fate of Urban Organics, um, uh, which took over Ham's Brewery and other high turbonics. So um, it's a great business idea, but, you know, there's also been a lot of, um, I don't know, uh, a lot of hardships on it. It's not, it's, this is not an easy thing. Again, it's a very audacious uh, um, plan. All business has risk. I just want everyone to understand that. There is no such as such thing as a risk-free business. Um, the founder of Herbal Organics, who I met with before this meeting, who is now intrigued with this and jumping back. And remember, he sold it to another company, and that's where its demise occurred uh, mm, on that process. That. There will be failure. I will guarantee you that. But best thing about community self-determination is they have the determination to fail and learn from that and then succeed the next time around. So that's really key part of this. And thing. that's the thing, the agency to be able to fail, right? Correct. And then one of the other props will come with this. And that's what's really the key point you're making is that if I have a specialty pepper in the Latinx community, I can grow it here. If I have a medicinal herb I want to grow in the native community, I can grow it here. And so forth. And that's really, especially type of fish, and that's really the genius is that I can map my own food course and destiny my food market that's unique to the community I serve. Yeah. And then oh, here's a – so this comment will leave on – be the last comment. Congratulations to this group. I shop at Four Sisters Farmer's Market nearly all summer. Great quality and so friendly. I've gotten to know this neighborhood deals with serious food insecurity, particularly among elders. It is also full of knowledgeable and resourceful gardeners. I hope that tremendous success and, uh, and create, that they'll create a model that can be built on. Agreed. And that's what's key. And just to put the last plug, please come to the Benefit Concert Sunday night. Uh, I'm going to bring all the drawings there so you can see what the visions will look like. So you don't have to imagine over radio. And it's a fundraiser. So enjoy a great choir, Maples Co-op Choir. And you'll be able to see this vision in person. Thank you. Okay. And I may replay the show over Thanksgiving weekend. So this is the, the benefit concert will be Sunday, November 19th, 7 p.m. at Holy Rosary Church on 2424 18th Avenue, South Minneapolis. So I thank you so much, um, Dean. Um, thank and you. again, the website is also um, epnifarm.org. Yeah, it's a great website. Uh, outstanding. You'll learn a lot about the project from it. So please go there and take a look at it. And again, last minute, but shout out. So many people are working and, and putting their effort into this. And uh, it's just a really a beautiful... Uh... It's a true team now. It's a truly a community team that's become very sophisticated and knowledgeable making this vision happen. And it's exciting to see that degree of dedication to this project. Um, what's your idea of food freedom? Of food freedom. Well, this represents food freedom. The idea is that I can create my my own destiny, and that's the key. That I can grow my food, process it, and serve it under my terms as opposed to someone else's terms. That's what food freedom means to me. Awesome. You've been listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950. I'm Laura Headland, and uh, thank you for listening. Thank you. Thank you, Dean.